Trees podcast. I'm Adrian Bonnenberger, a co-editor with Wrathbearing Tree, and I'll be today's host. We have something a little different. March 15th, the day this is being published, is the 10-year anniversary of my final departure from Afghanistan, and in many ways, the close of the chapter of my life that inspired a lot of writing and introspection about those experiences. To commemorate that happy event, I'll be chatting with Jim Dow, who covered soldiers in my unit during that deployment from 2010 to 2011 for the New York Times. He wrote and reported for a sweeping and innovative documentary about the deployment called A Year at War, following soldiers and their families for a year, and later was executive producer on a Netflix documentary titled Father, Soldier, Son, featuring one of the sergeants on that deployment, Brian Eich. Among other things, he's currently an editor overseeing education coverage for the New York Times. Jim, how are you? I'm good, Adrian. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. The first question I had for you, as this will be a little bit of a conversation between us about covering what that deployment was like, our memories of it, and maybe some things that we didn't talk about at the time, as well as reflections, uh, looking back 10 years on what's happened since, uh, was, is there anything about Afghanistan from that deployment that sort of jumps out at you? Just uh, in terms of the physical attributes of the land of, uh, of, of Kunduz province? Like, what do you remember when you hear Kunduz, when you think Kunduz? You know, so I, I did a couple of stints in Afghanistan, mostly in first a couple of times south of Kabul and then east near the Pakistan border. And then with you folks in the north. And the north was, as you know, was so different topographically, right? It was so, it was kind of lush and relatively flat. My memories of the place were of were green fields and wheat fields, and um, which is so different from my images of the rest of the country, which are beautifully jagged, snow-covered mountains, like those in the Hindu Kush and those in the you know, uh, near the Pakistan border. It, just gorgeous terrain to look at, unbelievably hard to navigate. But the North was so different, right? It was so, uh, it, what, what did they call it? They call it the breadbasket of Afghanistan, right? It was worth the rice. There was a lot of rice patties too, right? Which was extraordinary in such a dry country. Yeah, I remember the rice patties, especially being something that I'd, so much of how people talked and thought about Afghanistan when I was there, when you were there, you know, 10 years ago, was informed by America's experience in the Vietnam War. I think in terms of literature, because we were in a counterinsurgency, in terms of literature, in terms of cinema, in, in just sort of the vocabulary we had for that fight, a lot of it ha had come from Vietnam. And so Vietnam was a place of jungles and rice paddies, a different type of rice paddy and, and rain. And here Afghanistan right. was dry. Um, and yet, because you know, most of my, my experience previously had been also in the east of Afghanistan, up on the border of Pakistan, Taktika province, um, I was used to a very arid, drab, mountainous environment with some trees, some pine trees, and seeing those, that lush vegetation, uh, the rice paddies especially, was very um, disorienting, um, but also familiar in a kind of way. 
Yeah, Kunduz was so different from the rest of the country, right? I mean, in every way, it was, I'd be interested in hearing from you what you thought about going there, because you had been in the East where there was so much conflict and so much of the surge was focused on, you know, the South and Kandahar, and that's where all the dramatic combat was. But Kunduz was kind of this quiet, slightly mysterious place in the North. I'd love to hear what you thought about like your the when they told you that's where you were going. What was what was the what was the impression among you and the other troops? We were reading about those places like Kunar recently. Uh, Wesley Morgan has just come out with this book, uh, The Hardest Place, right? Um, and really extraordinarily well written. I think we're going to see a lot more of these books in the coming years. Is kind of you know there's enough data now to look at the breadth of deployments and and, and draw useful conclusions about what happened there and why. But we were, it, like you said, it was mysterious. People were disappointed that they weren't going somewhere with heavier fighting, but relieved that they weren't going to Iraq, which they knew from a recent deployment, like the fighting was, was, had been winding down. Um, yeah. This is an infantry unit. So they wanted, they wanted fighting. Yeah, it, that, that's so true. It's funny. I, in advance of this conversation, I did sort of look back at a couple of the stories from a year at war. And it's funny, to, it's interesting to note, and of course this brings back memories of people talking about it, but you know, lots of the 19, 20 year old guys saying, yeah, can't wait to get into my first fight. Can't wait to get into my first fight. And, and being disappointed when minor firefights didn't turn into bigger firefights. Uh, it was, it was, it's interesting to look back on that. One of the things about the infantry and about all the training that goes into it is you're, you're really primed to go into a fight um, yeah. and to do fighting. So much so that you, up to a certain point, you just, you, in, you enjoy it. I mean, you don't really, you know, you don't enjoy it at the time. It's in the sense that you're exposed to some type of danger. The people who would hate being in that situation, which is probably the majority of people, have mostly self-selected out of the yeah. infantry by the time you get to a deployment. Right. Um, I think another thing that was odd about the North specifically was how kind of clearly delineated it was, how there were areas that the Taliban actually did control, I think more so than we understood when we were coming into it. Like nobody really knew what to expect, but we expected the, the Germans had the North and you know we weren't gonna see a lot of fighting right. there. Um, but there was actually, I, I don't know, in my assessment, there was a fair bit of fighting and shooting to be had, but you would cross a line into places where you knew you were going to be fighting. Yeah. Um, in the East, you could cross lines, you could go into villages and find fighting, but there was one line you couldn't cross, which was the border of Pakistan, the Durant line. Right. And... And that was ultimately the problem in the East is that you just couldn't, like you could get into as many fights as you want, but it was a bottomless pit, you know, there were, you know, more Taliban would come from over the border. Yeah. And the thing with Kunduz is Kunduz was so far for them. Um, you know, its border was with Tajikistan and right. um, it felt like getting into fights was doing something more productive somehow that like we were actually pushing the Taliban out. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. I that th that idea of inching up to invisible lines and testing them and seeing what would happen is one of my main memories of patrols 
with your with your company and with other companies. I, I think I think one of the first patrols Damon Winter and I did were I, I can't remember now. It it must have been in the Char de Rob district, maybe with was that Deco? Does that sound right? Is that Deco? That's and right. uh, we we just, we basically just as like four MRAPs rolled out of the of the base that they shared with the Afghan army, and uh, within a mile, somebody in the in the tree line fired an RPG, and it hit the the wheel of the the MRAP that Damon was riding in, and it was a dud as it turned out, but it went it smacked right into the tire and just bounced off, right, and then and so like everybody's jumping out, and there's a guns blazing, and uh, you know, nothing came of it and turned it around and went back. But it was like, okay, we know where that line is now. <laughs> it's it's a, it's only about a mile from the uh, fr from that little base. And what a what a strange way to start for Damon. In that, if that thing hadn't been a dud, it was a direct hit on the tire he was sitting right over. So you were there three times, I think, right? You spent three months there yep. what was that like i mean you almost had a mini deployment with him in a sense like you two yeah deployed. you know in, in a way we were trying to time it we thought in a way that we hoped would capture the the arc of the deployment and you know and as you know the the point of the series was to capture not just conflict but also the lives of you know deployed troops to document as well as we could their their uh, loneliness and uh, homesickness, uh, you know, or just as well as kind of the joy and camaraderie of, of, you know, troops at war. And we just wanted to get all of that. And so we figured we'd go in when the battalion went in, leave with the battalion, and then go in the middle of the deployment. It, that meant we missed some really important events, but um, I think I think at least we were able to capture the you know the arc of the of the of the deployment, and and with it both the fear and, and joys and and anxieties of the average soldier. One of the things that I think one sees in um, with journalism sometimes is, you know, when you do just thinking about the practicality of spending a year with a unit. Do you think that's practical or useful for a journalist to spend an entire year? I mean, like, doesn't that kind of ruin the journalism at a certain point, like, you know, like don't uh, you need to come in and out to be able to kind of like have a sense of, of observing events rather than participating in them? You know, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about this before we went over. You know, when you look back at the, the journalists who covered World War II, uh, Ernie Pyle, I mean, he, he was deployed for four years. He, he went over and he just stayed and he, and he and he was basically and he was you know other other American journalists and I'm sure European journalists as well where they 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 essentially lived the lives of frontline soldiers for years at a time and you can look back and criticize the quality of the journalism as being too cozy with the troops too cozy with you know the the you know, not not lacking perhaps critical distance from what was going on but. They sure as hell documented the war in a, an incredibly uh, direct way that I think a lot of journalists in Vietnam tried to do as well. 
and you know when you read about how journalists covered Vietnam, it was it was extraordinary how open the whole process was. Essentially, journalists would be in Saigon or you know or you know some other forward base somewhere, and and they would hear about a mission, and they would hop on. You know the choppers and go. They they would and they would drop into you know frontline combat zones. They would drop into places where units would be surrounded and under attack. It was just extraordinary acts of bravery on the part of those journalists. But they got they they were seeing the war up close and documenting it. And and I think the American, you know, the the, the American military realized this was not a good thing for their for the you know the PR case in Vietnam and there was ever after an effort to lock down the ability of you know journalists to move that freely among american troops in combat zones you know you had the extreme restrictions of the the persian gulf war where you know i don't know it, 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 that was the beginning of the embed system and there was no room for free movement within that embed system from what i could tell i i, I didn't to participate in that. I think it, things loosened up a little bit for Iraq and Afghanistan, but there were still a lot of restrictions. And so, so that's a long, long answer to your question. I'm sorry. But I think what you're getting at is, would it have been better to just, would, was it better to come in and out or would it have been better to just stay, frankly, ideally for journalism? To allow greater freedom for journalists to come in and out would have been the ideal thing, and and that just wasn't possible. So, we basically negotiated the opportunities, you know, to go in, you know, and then come back in the middle, and then come back at the end. And I think within those parameters, we we had a lot of freedom. Well, we had a fair amount of freedom to talk to you folks on the on the base. It wasn't like there were handholders and minders when we went on patrols. We were just with you, and whatever happened happened. Um, I think once once we were able to just get out with you, there there was a terrific amount of access and freedom, and that was I think good for the journalism. And I think that helped readers get a clearer sense of what was going on. Um, Part of it too is like um, you know World War II is its own conflict. It, it almost feels like, I don't know, more permissible in a sense to, to have a journalist fully embedded in a unit from, you know, 1939 or 1941 or 1940, depending on, you know, what, what, what country you're coming from to, uh, to the end of it, uh, because everybody picked a side. You know, World War II was one of, those, one of those conflicts where there were sides and whatever the uniform of the people that you were with uh, happened to be was the side that you were on. <laughs> And that was pretty non-negotiable. Yeah. Um, maybe a little bit less so on the Eastern Front, where you hear these weird stories about, like, you know, the Soviets being taken prisoner and fighting for the Nazis, or Nazis being taken prisoner and fighting for the Soviets, or whatever. But um, certainly in the Western theater, you know, yeah. the, the color of the uni of your uniform really said everything that you needed to know about it. And uh, and also, the other thing that I, I I think is that like back then, and maybe. To a lesser extent today, back then, being part of an organization meant that you were kind of spoken for in a way. Like there was there was a stronger institutional sense of journalism. Like if someone were to have simply, you know, I don't know, if if there was a, a Substack or, or blog version 
uh, you know, in 1942, I guess a broadside or whatever, you're printing a newsletter, you wouldn't have just like rolled up to a unit and been like, I'm a journalist, I'm gonna come with you guys. Like that would, I don't think that would have worked, you know, like there would have needed to be some kind of framework, you know, even if it was a hometown paper like the, the Hartford Current or whatever, rather than like a larger institution. An institution was sufficient to say, okay, this person is with us and there's, you know, there's something behind that. Yeah, no, I, I, I get it. In our modern um, uh, uh, media world, it, it, I, it would be just terror for a, uh, I could imagine for a, a platoon leader or company commander to just have a journalist just drop in who's, who's you know, and you'd have no idea who they were, where, where they were coming from, and you'd be expected to bring them along on patrols. But that said, I think, I think there was extraordinary freedom for journalists to do just that in, in Vietnam. And, and I, I don't know the details. It's possible that there was a fair amount of vetting for in terms of who could get press passes to just jump on a chopper and, you know, go to Quezon or wherever. Um, but um, those journalists who did have, you know, the, that access, you know, were able to just, you know, there, I don't think there was a heck of a lot of planning involved. They just dropped into places and covered what was going on at that moment. And that's why we get a, we got a, such a vivid um, and deeply dismaying picture of what happened in Vietnam. There was a pretty, pretty thorough coverage, I think. Maybe the pendulum then was swung toward total freedom in Vietnam, in part probably because a lot of the leaders in Vietnam had a positive memory of journalists in World War II because journalists were, I mean, the journalistic effort in World War II was a, we all, we're all on the same side here. We're all telling the same story. So the generals and, and lieutenant colonels and majors in Vietnam had that memory. And so when they saw journalists show up, they said, go out and do the thing that I know that you do. And then things didn't quite work out that way. And it swung in the other direction toward restrictiveness. By the time I embedded with your battalion, it was certainly less restrictive than it was um, during the Persian Gulf War. And again, I wasn't there, but I just I know of it from talking to journalists and reading about it, where it was incredibly controlled. Obviously, it was a very short engagement, but um, but we're we're you know we're, yeah, it's not it's certainly not near the freedom of what you know what what we saw in Vietnam or or World War II. Um, it's it, you know. And it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next um, the next time there's a major American um, military uh, engagement at war where where there's a lot of American troops and a lot of coverage. Um, we'll, we'll see we'll see what happens. It'll be interesting to see how American uh, news organizations choose to cover it as well. Um, um, this is a little bit off topic, but like, you know, I, I I can still remember when when the invasion of Iraq was being was in the works, and they and the Pentagon was trying to organize how they were going to let journalists cover it, and, and it was just like, it you know, it it was it was just there there must have been a, a you know a a gigantic team within the Pentagon that was just sort of mapping out which units they were going to allow journalists to cover and which journalists they were going to allow into those units. And it was like this massive, it wasn't quite a lottery. I think there was a lot of thought 
put into like how, how are they going to make these decisions and but it was like it was an incredibly meticulous decision making process to match up who they thought were the right journalists with the right you know the right units um I guess maybe in part because we're still in these things, less so Iraq, but certainly Afghanistan, it's hard to say what what has led to what because it's still happening. Like what, and, and that's one of the reasons I, you know, I mentioned, um, you know, uh, Wes Morgan's book recently is because it's looking at eighteen years. It's looking at you know two thousand one to wow. about twenty, you know, nineteen twenty twenty, and 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 so you can make meaningful. Uh, conclusions about that, at least from some type of, I guess, historical standpoint. But like what, you know, I, the thing that I think about a lot here, 10 years later, 10 years after, you know, I, uh, I set foot, I, I, I last set foot in Afghanistan is, you know, what, not what good did it do? Because I don't even know what that question really means. But like, what, what did it do? You know, what was, what was the, what did the, what effect did the deployment have? Um, and I can think of effects like sort of the arc, you know, in the arc of the deployment, because when we got there, there were those lines that we were talking about earlier. And when we left, some of those lines had been erased or, or disrupted, at least. So there, it felt mm. like there was a kind of right. progress there. But then in America, you know, in the, the context of America, did, you know, I don't know, did people reading that or, 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 or hearing about what we were doing did that have any impact? Yeah, I, I I can I hear you, and and I think that's got to be one of the hardest things to cope with for people who who served there, you know, a year or maybe several years of their lives, um, and maybe saw people they cared about wounded or or killed. Um, uh, it's so hard to decide, you know, determine like what was gained. Uh, I, I it's a question I don't. I don't, I don't. I just don't think anybody um, can really answer in a in a in a clear, cogent way. Um, you know, it it. There's little question that when you look at, you know, the 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 impact that your battalion had. I, I mean, you know, from what I could see, you're right. What what you you know, in terms of, there were lines. In turn, uh, that that were hard to cross. If you were probably the Afghan military, or obviously if you were U.S. troops, um, you it does seem pretty clear that you guys pushed those lines back um, and uh, established um, in in what was already a fairly stable area. You you maybe widened the 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 radius of stability. Um, out into areas where you knew there was strong Taliban um, presence, if not outward actual control in some of those places, right? I guess up in, uh, you know, Imam Sahib where you were, I think there were probably areas that were virtually under Taliban control and you, you push some of that back. Um, but the, the, the question that remains is, did, does any of that last? It, it doesn't seem that way, right? Without without the presence of American troops and all their firepower, um, can the can the Afghan military do it on its own? And it it just it that that question isn't fully answered yet, but it's not looking good right now. Yeah, yeah. One of the weird things about Kunduz that I remembered was 
the and it 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 came with its own kind of problems were the militias you know the people that were bet, that were actually most effective at fighting the taliban were these militias they hadn't been stuffed mm. into humvees or uniforms and like yeah. uh, forced and like forced to carry m16s around m16s around and like fight like americans they were just kind of fighting fighting the taliban the way they'd always like the way the, the way the taliban fought essentially and they were pretty effective yeah. at it but they were doing things that we just you know we couldn't tolerate and the whole the whole thing felt so i don't know sad and doomed hmm. like we I, if we can't get the afghans to fight the to defeat the taliban on our terms not on their terms on our terms um because their terms when you look at it in some cases are not our terms like uh, they're objectionable terms even um then yeah to your to your point so like what are we doing there like we could push the line here we could push the line there but it's not really the afghans aren't doing it doesn't it doesn't really matter and that was the whole point of us being there like the the that to your point about about you know moving lines back that the, the the coup de gras or the denouement of uh, of our deployment, I think, was this mm -hmm. last operation we did, where the Afghans did everything. It was all Afghan army, Afghan police, and militias, and they pushed the Taliban all the way out of Imam Sahib district, I think, into the next province. And that was like that was taken as an important sign of progress that the Afghans had done it without our support. We'd been there, but we didn't shoot our weapons at all. Yeah. We were there. We we're just kind of on the road hanging out. The soldiers were annoyed because there was no fighting, but we were hearing these huge gun battles, like the tide coming in and out, like to the north of us, to the south of us, somewhere to the east. Yeah. Um, but not it didn't, it wasn't at us, it was it was them. And they did it and they they succeeded. And and so we thought at the time this is probably replicable, but of course, you know, ultimately it, it wasn't or it, it hasn't been. Yeah, that's one. That's one of those um, uh, missions that I, I really wish we could have gone on. Um, when when, when was that, by the way? That yeah, was... well, because you because because <laughs> you were just watch, you were just listening from a distance. In other words, yeah. yeah. But the idea yeah. of it, it's interesting, right? I mean, that was what your whole that was what the entire battalion. That's what the entire really, in a way, the the, the entire surge was about was to uh, you know enable that kind of of mission to happen and succeed, right? So uh, when was that, by the way? Was it like December of 2010, January 2011? It was late, it was late January 2011. Uh, late January might have even extended briefly into, into the beginning of February. Um, but I know this, mm. it could have even been mid-January to late January. I do know that it wasn't in December because December was the big uh, push into Gortepa with Alpha Company, uh, with right. Carly Company and the engineers. And that was a fun, you know, that was, there was quite a bit of fighting in the beginning of that one. We took helicopters in. Um, so we did a, an air movement. It wasn't an air assault. An air assault is something that uh, takes place against, you know, uh, armed resistance. And we didn't hit any armed resistance. We, uh, I think an Afghan, a militia right. hit a mine and that was it. But we, uh, yeah. And we fought alongside the Germans, which was really fun. We, you talked about it, and uh, we have we certainly spent time with German units. Um, it must have been with 
Deco and in Chartara, because um, you know they they their their base is adjacent to the Afghan unit there that uh, the Deco folks hung out with, and we would go over and talk to them. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I remember your 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 being. Um, sort of finding it so extraordinary and and, and I, I got it too i mean like you know that we were fighting alongside germans in uh in afghanistan um what a what a crazy notion i get i guess how i mean how often has that happened since uh i don't know <laughs> I, it's, maybe had never happened i don't anyway, think you know, i don't think that's ever happened yeah maybe no. ever yeah <laughs> which by itself makes it this makes uh, it extraordinary the Germans had some cool drones, as I recall. Mm. They they had um, little handheld drones that they would um, they would launch mainly for surveillance purposes, and we would sit and sit at their shoulders and look at look at their laptops as they were surveilling um, suspicious movements of possible Taliban troops outside the the walls. It was uh, it was it was interesting. Uh, we, we didn't we didn't get to see the the U.S. drones. We weren't allowed to to look at that those uh, those video images. But uh, the Germans were like, "Hey, come on over, take check it out." <laughs> you know, what's funny? A couple of things that strike me as immediately sort of amusing about that. Firstly, that you know, th this this sort of over secrecy of the U.S. government. You look at drones today, like in the the, the advance of technology, and I think you could get a drone off the shelf that is, you know, probably, I mean, not exponentially more useful, like higher fidelity. Uh, I don't know, like you could spend $1,500 and get a top flight yeah. that would be beyond the imagining of a battalion. And yet we were sort of like, like holding that so close because it was a secret because technically once a thing is a secret, it's like, well, yeah, we can't tell them, can't show the journalists that. I mean, there was that one uh, mission that we, that I couldn't let you and Damon go on. And it was like the, I think that was the only mission that for me, I, I, like I couldn't, I couldn't let you go on it because it was a secret mission. And naturally you were like, oh no, 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 we really want to go on this mission. But it was just, it was just because it was labeled a secret mission. It was a secret mission. Yeah. You know? And yeah, actually yeah. nothing happened. All we did was pull security while special forces <laughs> like did this thing that wasn't, uh, yeah. even that was like yeah. not particularly interesting. And then anything, we went anything involving special forces. Yeah. You know, when I, when I, I, I was, uh, my embed in the, um, in Iraq started with seals. Right. And that was an incredibly controlled embed where like they took down a, uh, an oil rig. I, I didn't actually get to go to the oil rig. I just got to watch the, the whole thing. And, um, interview the seals that went on it and then i hung out with them for about a week and then they all dispersed into super secret missions and i couldn't see any more but then then i i i managed to like just stick around the special operations base um in i guess it was in northern kuwait right right off the border and uh and as, as a result of hanging out there for like several weeks um, an army special forces lieutenant colonel just like threw me in the back of his jeep and let me drive drive up to um, uh, one of to visit his units um, between uh, the border and um, how far do we get like Nasiriyah, 
Diwaniya was the place I ended up in. And then he just let me off. He just let me off and let me just hang out with a with a with a green beret unit there for like. And I I could have just I could have spent like a month with them if I wanted to. It was it, it was it was part of the odd environment that we had where, where it was like to some degree it was heavily controlled. But like once you sort of got in, once you got sort of embedded in a place, they they then they they like let you have a lot of freedom to just hang out with people and and talk. And so these Green Berets who were, you know, anything that you guys did with the Green Berets, we weren't allowed to see. But like, once I had embedded with these guys for a week, they were like, whatever we're doing, you're going with us, it's fine. Right. <laughs> right. There was like no consistency to the policy. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing I, I was interested in asking you about is, um, you know, in the North, it was so interesting because you had a, you know, you had warlords, you had criminal operations, you had government, you know, uh, units. Um, you just had local militias run by, you know, whatever the the, the elders in a village. I mean, it was just like the, the, there there was not a you know a top down structure to, to the government, and obviously and. And, and a lot of chaos and lots of fighting factions that you could never quite identify, right? And, and my sense was always that the Taliban actually was not all that different. It's not like it was a top-down military structure. There was a lot of local units and tribal leaders and criminal organizations that all kind of loosely held together as the Taliban. Um, and it always seemed to me that that was a really complicated world for you as a company commander to navigate, you know, that you had to sort of figure out who was allied with who, um, whether you were dealing with a, you know, an upstanding government official or military officer or someone who was basically at a tribal link to some group that might be problematic. And that that you were also dealing with not just the Taliban, but also, you know, criminal organizations that were that were moving guns and drugs across the border the to and from Tajikistan, right? I mean, you had. Tell me if I'm right. Do I have do I have this right that you had you had sort of some experiences like having to navigate all these different factions that were shooting at each other and shooting at you? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. I remember thinking in Afghanistan what when I took command of Alpha Company and started to get a lay of the land. I remember thinking, and, and, and it was it was similar to my first deployment in Afghanistan in the East, but but different in the sense that the East was was more stable in a weird way than the North. I think because the East, where where, where we were in Paktika, was just so remote that the tribes that had power, like the, the, the amount of power in a tribe would rise or fall, but, but those tribes remained constant and probably had been constant for centuries. Um, yeah. and, and, and their, you know, their fortunes rose and fell with the, the, you know, the empire that was occupying, that happened to be occupying at the time. But the North, as, you know, as we've mentioned, very different place, um, built up, settled, more money coming through, you know, there, there was that big highway there. It, and, and so, yeah. you know, more factions able to be there, and yet still, you know, hard for the government to project power into that space. And so I, the, I, I was thinking at the time about um, my experience in the east of Afghanistan. I was thinking also about uh, how, how in London, 
um, the police force was stood up over time. And, and, and originally in London, and I think in, in, in Britain in general, the police were sort of gang members that had been deputized, essentially. So like they, they, they picked a gang that would work with the crown. And like the crown was like, okay, these uh, people have the most invested in society. They like violence, but we can work with them. Yeah. And over time, they became the police. And we're still very corrupt, like, you know, even a couple centuries yeah. ago, like barely better than uh than 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 the gangs that they were fighting with so there were state the state the state had sanctioned gangsters to carry out the state's yeah essential activity that's so interesting and so it felt to me like that was what kind of where we were in the north of afghanistan you know it was this kind of wild west like scenario where people were we were trying to negotiate who who got to control that violent power and so yeah. I always blew right by the criminal part of it and the objection the things that were objectionable um, to me personally. You know, I, I, I think yeah. that the three things that they, that they talked about that were happening in the North at that time were weapons trafficking, drug trafficking, right. and human trafficking. And for me, human trafficking was the line that I personally, I decided I'm not going to cross that line if I find out that one of the guys that I'm working with, you know, one of these militia guys or one of these Taliban groups is, is, is engaged in human trafficking. I, I cannot condone that. But the drug trafficking and the weapons trafficking, right. I was like, I don't, I don't even know, you know, I don't know how I feel personally today about like drug trafficking, like what that means. I know people in the government were like, well, the, you know, the Taliban is making money off of the drug trafficking, which is something similar to what they say with Mexico. And so I determined that what yeah. I was going to do was to help the government take control of that place. And then I figured they could sort through all of those details later. They could figure out what was what they didn't condone. Um, but, but the first and most essential step was that almost that first act of, of, of law, of saying like, this is a place that the government controls. You know, it, it seems to me that so much of what you guys were trying to do, and I think this was true with every American unit across Afghanistan, was you were trying to establish relationships with local commanders, local police officers, local uh, government officials in general, and um, and just bolster them and give them, you know, give them some training, but also just, you know, try to help them uh, create some sort of structure that that might hold beyond your stay. And I'm curious whether, I, I vaguely remember you had a close relationship with one of the police commanders. It, it, do I have that right? Was there, was there one you had a relationship? Was that you or was that maybe, maybe that was Deco? I developed a close relationship with an Afghan border policeman um, who was sort of, I think, third in their structure. Uh, so he was whatever the operations guy is. And he'd been in Pakhika province at the same time that I had. And the Afghans mm. who, yeah. who got killed after we left, like uh, Chief uh, Ibrahimi, I, mean, I had a good working Ibrahimi. relationship with him. Yeah, he was the one who took us out to play uh, Buzkashi um, somewhere right. against, right. against regulations. Right. <laughs> well, you should talk about that for a minute. Um, I, I'm curious as to like, um, like how confident were you that you were actually going to a Bushkashi game and not, you know, not being set up to, 
for an ambush. What, what, what was the, what was going through your mind when that happened? I always figured, I mean, Ibrahimi was from this wealthy family. His brother, one of his older brothers was like, basically the, 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 um, like, like the Mitch McConnell of, of the Afghan parliament or something. He was like a senior. Yeah, MP no, I remember, I remember you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, so like I, I figured he was probably, even though he was a little bit dodgy and, you know, clearly, but he was from this sort of noble family and he took Buzkashi very seriously. And he was, I, I guess I, I made, I, I was thinking through all of the things that I knew about him and like, I'd let him come into my, you know, I'd invited him into my um, uh, vehicle for a couple of deployment, you know, for a couple of the operations. He hated the vehicle. It was too cramped for him. He was a, a big guy. Yeah, um, but I felt yeah. that we, you know, part of part of the fight was about taking those chances and demonstrating to the Afghans that, yeah, we're just like, yeah, we, the Americans are here and they're around and that's that's cool and they trust us and we trust them. Um, I was less worried about being ambushed. I was more worried about us them being ambushed, us hitting an IED that they didn't know about, or yeah. the way they were driving. I was just worried that like one of these pickup trucks would would you know, flip over and kill us all. <laughs> They well, were driving the road. Yeah, it was just very, very stressful. But um, and I and I did bring a little bodyguard of of, of some of the best guys, you know, some of, some of the 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 chanciest guys, the guys I knew were who were going to have the, you know, if if if, if, if we were going to get into a gunfight, I want I wanted it to be with them, yeah, by my side. So yeah, it all worked out. Yeah, you could you could probably set up for your listeners what what exactly happened there. It was quite extraordinary. So he's the local police commander, and he basically just invited you to a Bushkashi game, which you were totally not allowed to go to, right? Oh, right. Yeah, that's that's important <laughs> and, context. And you, yeah, you, you, you piled uh, like a handful of soldiers, Damon and me, into into uh, you, you didn't pile it, but like you invited us to go along, and we rode in their little whatever those were Toyota pickups. Um, for miles along a you know single lane dirt road, not knowing exactly where we were going to end up, and then all of a sudden, you know, we're in the middle of a field, and there's a, a you know massive Bushkashi game going on with scores of Afghans on horses uh, chasing down a goat's head. It was quite extraordinary. Exactly right, uh, and and I think too, you know. The military, um, maybe like institutions, you know, it, it rewards successful risk taking. It dissuades risk taking because uh, because risk is risky. I'd seen this in the past. I'd seen other commanders do this. My first deployment, company commanders violated the battalion and the brigade. Sort of, you know, you can do this. You can't do this. You know, you can go like this. You can't. You have to be in Humvees. You can't be in pickup trucks. You can't. I'd, I'd seen people break these rules all the time, and 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 whenever it worked, they were rewarded, and when it didn't work, they were punished. And I I think too that right. like institutions, you know, so much depends on. Why, are, why is an individual being given authority to make a choice? Why does an individual have power or authority? An individual has to be capable of taking responsibility for things that go wrong. Um, but what you do is you hope that you've put trust and authority and, and, and power into the hands of somebody who's going to assess a situation 
and deliberately decide to take a, a chance. The word that we have to describe this is luck. And we, and we capture it as good luck or bad luck. Like, oh, that person has bad luck. That person has good luck. And um, yeah, based on everything that I knew about Ibrahimi and we had just one that was right after that big battle uh, I was telling you about where the Afghans won it. Mm. And, and I made a big deal about putting right. them front and center. And it was like, you guys did it. Yeah. This is you, this isn't us. We're back here. You guys get the glory on this one. Um, and I believe that you, you remember, I mean, I sincerely believe that I, I believe that was actually yeah. the course that, that, you know, if, if, if things were going to work in Afghanistan, that's how it would have worked. Um, right. and, um, and so for me, it was sort of like, if things go wrong under, in, in this particular situation, you know, if, if things get fucked up, then I'll take the court martial and, uh, you know, whatever, like this, this. I, this is a mistake that I'm willing to make because this is the moment when you have to sort of, like we were, we, to me, it was like, you know, we're, we're pushing it over the line here. Here we are, the Americans are yeah. here. You've seen the fighting, you've heard the fighting. That's all done with. And, um, and because of that, because we, we, we you know, we, we took a little leap of faith there, we got a chance to see an incredible Buscasi, Buscasi match which was so cool. Yeah. And that was Ibrahimi. Yeah. Ibrahimi was taking a risk too. He was inviting us. He was saying, these people are under my protection. He was saying, these people are, you know, this is how things are yeah. going to be now. Uh, and I yeah. wanted to honor that sure. too. I wanted to, to show up for him the way he had, he had opened that door. And uh, Blum, I mean, a couple of soldiers got to ride horses. I mean, let, let, yeah. let's, let's take the, the, the full measure of my profound irresponsibility as a commander. Uh, you know, also, you know, they gave us, he wanted me to take a Buscashi, to, to take a horse and just get in there, you know? And I don't uh, remember. Did you, I don't know how to ride did you, a horse. Did you get on? No. <laughs> no. Well, I, as I recall, I, as I recall, Gannon didn't know how to ride a horse either. And he got, he got out of one and kind of walked around in circles. <laughs> he, he felt more comfortable looking like an ass than I did. And because of his rank, I think he was in a position to look foolish. I, I, I felt that what was called for there was an act of a demonstration of competency. And luckily for everyone, uh, then Staff Sergeant Ryan Blum uh, had grown up on a ranch. In Texas. Yeah. And so he jumped on a horse yeah. and, uh, and was sort of galloping around. And people were like, oh, look at you know, the American. He knows how to use the horse. He was, a, he was magnificent. He looked great. It was amazing. I thought he was going to win the match, actually, at one point. <laughs> that would have been great. Yeah. Uh, did, did those guys know what they were getting into? Did you, did you fill them in completely uh, before you, you took off on this? I didn't know what we were getting into completely. I think I, they, they, yeah. uh, they, I was going to go to a Buzkashi match. And, but it was clear yeah. that what was called for was a security detail. Yeah, my RTO. Yeah. I think Casey Rorick was there with the tax hat in case anything crazy happened. I mean, I would have been in. I would have been fired immediately. Yeah, I would have been perhaps executed. Yeah, such a, yeah, a, 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 a crazy risk it, to take, but it didn't feel like one at, at the time. It felt like one to me, but it was quite. It was quite exhilarating. <laughs> I have to say, did you guys went along? I'm just you know, curious. You yeah, it was it was it was wonderful. Um, it was so great to just like, you know, not drive in an MRAP uh, and um, 
bounce along and uh you know through you know back country roads that we had never been on and 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 just, and i'd always wanted to see bushkashi i'd never seen it you know live same, same. um did any of your superiors ever hear about this or is this going to be the first time it goes public <laughs> first time first time it goes public that's right yeah yeah assuming you don't cut it um no, I'll, well, I'll you know, Damon took a lot of photos. I don't know if we've, we've, we've never we've never let those see the light of day. Maybe we should at some point. You're, at this point, you're welcome to. I think there's a 10-year statute of limitations on prosecution. <laughs> there may be. And if there isn't, then I, I still have to lawyer up. Uh, but, but nothing. I'll, I'll just say that you're your soldiers um whatever they felt about the you know the rest of the deployment i'm sure that that's a pretty fond memory from for those guys who went along yeah yeah i i, I only wish i wish we could have done more things like that we didn't have time to was was one problem and then the other problem was that you know the institution mitigates risk that was something that we were doing normally then the Taliban would have set IEDs down and would have blown up a, a vehicle or, or yeah. not, the IED, not the Taliban or just another gang, you know, uh, yeah. because who knows, you know, those, those, those rivalries. Chief Ibrahimi was assassinated after we left, I think some months after we left. Um, so he's dead. Um, but I don't know that it was the Taliban that killed him. I think it's just as, just as possible that, you know, he was killed by one of those, uh, that he started to exercise his authority as a police, as the police chief of, you know, Imam Sahib district. Mm -hmm. And uh, right. And he was killed by, you know, some guy who was pissed at him. Yeah. I, I am wondering, you know, as, as a last question here, just looking back on things, what your, what your basic impressions are. Do you think about when, when you think about this, if you think about it, do you think to yourself, like, personally, you know, I'm, I'm glad I did that. Like that was a good thing to do. And I'm, I'm, how do you think of it? Hmm. I mean, I, um, I mean, the simple answer is absolutely. I, I think it was an important thing for me to do. Um, and, um, I think we, we, you know, we produce some journalism that I'm proud of. Um, I, I, I always, I think what motivated me to, to do this was, was to try to um, really just tell this, the, the personal stories of, of American troops at war and, um, and to try to give a sense of their lives there, um, not just in combat, though combat, you know, we wanted combat to be part of it, but but also just their lives in general, you know, in in the the 90% of the time that's boring, you know, where you're doing nothing, um, as well as the 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 10% or 5% or 1% that's, you know, where you're 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 just freaking out in fear um, because you're under fire. But we also wanted to capture the 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 family lives of people, the lives that they were leaving behind the families they were leaving behind, and and I think I think we we did that, and and I feel I feel good about that um, because I my sense, and I guess this sort of underlies my you know the ambition of the whole project and the the mission of the whole project was 
you know, there were there are so few Americans that are have ties to the to the military anymore, right? It's such a small percentage of people who have who have served or who have loved ones or close friends who have served. It's just a small segment of American society. And um, I think we very much wanted to try to convey um, the even just the most mundane aspects of that experience to to the broader public because they're not getting it from because they don't have siblings or children or parents by and large because it's such a small percentage of people that were um, in the military or really closely affiliated with the military. And so I think I think we were I, i'm I'm proud of what we did because I think I think we succeeded in doing that. Um, the one thing we didn't try to do and and you know was to try to explain whether the American military is making a difference there. you know that was that was a that was a, a line I mean that's just a giant question that so many other journalists, both in America and and, and, and who were in Afghanistan have been were trying to answer then have been trying to answer ever since. and I think I think we still don't know. I still don't know. I don't. I don't have a clear view myself after all these years. I mean, I just read Dexter Filkin's piece in the New Yorker about, you know, uh, Afghanistan. Um, the big questions that face Joe Biden as he tries to decide whether to leave even just a handful of troops there or, or get them out, and what a what what a peace treaty could possibly look like. You know, I, I mean, I have no idea what it would look like. How could it? How is it possible that they're going to really reach an agreement where the government, the current government, Afghanistan, and the current culture of Afghanistan, where women have freedoms um, and you know pe people are given a you know there, there's there's cultural life in in Kabul and there's nightclubs and there's drinking and and you know girls get to go to school. Um, how, how are they going to negotiate those things? I have no idea. I have no idea. And I, and I don't, I have a hard time thinking that they're going to ever find a, a negotiated settlement that's going to work um, to preserve the, what, what's been gained over the last 20 years now. And, and I think it's fair. I, I will say this, and, and, and I was there in 2003. And then I went back in 2009, and then I was there with you guys in 2010 and 2011. And people gained rights, people gained freedoms. Um, you know, I saw schools being built and kids going to schools, and th those things matter. I don't know how they're going to preserve that progress. I'm not particularly optimistic, I guess, is the way I would leave it. The way I, I agree with everything that you've said and, and, and share your concerns um, about Afghanistan's future, I think having read this book by Wesley Morgan, which is the first substantial just sort of step back assessment that I've seen, and, and it, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's a book, it takes the time to look at the different commanders and their different personalities. And there's a commander in there that reminds me of myself and probably how I would have interacted with the Pesh Valley, if that's where I'd been deployed, um, you know, uh, not, not as heavy on the, the, the combat, you know, probably disappointed 
responding emotionally to, to combat rather than sort of like just calm-headed, even-tempered, tactical focus, um, but, but also more invested in the cultural side of things, you know, more willing to take a risk on, on cultural things and not just look at things in terms of, you know, tactics and battles and operations um, for their own sake, but, 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 but seeing tactics and battles and operations uh, in, in their context. So there was that guy and then there were other guys, you know, there were different commanders there and they had different agendas and they tried to implement those agendas with varying degrees of success. Um, and nobody was completely successful. And some people were, were some people failed. Um, and that's like the story of Afghanistan. And I feel that I was successful in the North as a company commander in terms of the mission. But when I think about the guys, my soldiers, my sergeants, um, my lieutenants, I, I tend to focus looking back on things, on the failures, on the places that I didn't succeed, the, the, the times that I let them down, mm. you know, the, the bad decisions I mm. made, like going up to Corgon Tapa Hill, you know, for the elections, like that to me, I, I don't regret anything in the sense that I'm a fatalist. I believe things were, things happen the way they do, not for a reason or not, not for a reason, just because that's how they happen, you know? And so if I were to go back in time, yeah. I would just sort of make those mistakes again, because I, I knew what I knew, but that was a mistake. You know, I have to, I have to own that. Like I was the one ultimately who said, let's go up that hill versus let's cord on off the hill, for example. Um, yeah. And, uh, and so I think about, you know, the guys who got hurt up there just about daily. I think about that. I think about the Afghans that, you know, mm. got killed, mm you know, working with us, uh, like Chief Ibrahimi yeah. or the, 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 the soldiers and right. policemen. I think about the, the Afghans that got killed, the civilians that got killed in the crossfire. And at the same time that I believe in the mission and that we did the right thing at that moment, that we were there for the right reasons. What better definition of good is there? Doing the right thing for the right reasons. Um, you right. know, that, it, that exists in a, tension, a kind of tension with the fact that people got hurt or died, and the people who got hurt had their lives changed, you know, irrevocably, and the the trajectory of their careers. And uh, yeah, and so uh, like yourself, I'm, I'm I'm left at the end of the day, you know, ten years later, you know, with uh, you know, I don't I don't feel great about things, but you know, I, I I focus on the mission because how can one go through life otherwise? How do you can't go through life sort of beating beating up on yourself every day for for the choices that you make um no 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 you really can't um, um yeah it's so much more personal for you as a co company commander um i'm curious and you obviously don't have to answer this if you don't want but if you if you've been in touch with maddie hayes or um kremer the uh the EOD guy that was wounded up in uh, on Gortepa Hill. Hayes, I saw a couple a few months ago. Gosh, it must have been like near huh. the beginning. It's like last summer. He drove out to see um, Bakula. I'm I'm in sporadic contact with Hayes. He's he's in college now and he's getting into writing, which is cool. Wow, he he wants that's to, fantastic. Yeah, he's, I think he's got a knack for it. Um, he's he's very sort of observational, but he's got a sense of humor, which is what, you know, the other soldiers always remarked on about him is that he had a, a very good sense of humor. He liked to drink Mountain Dew. You know, I, whenever I think about him, I think I need to reach out to him and I always need to reach out to him. 
Yeah. Um, and then Kramer, I actually see more because he's a Twitch streamer now. He, one of the things he does is he's really, streaming. yeah, he plays like Fortnite and some other video game, some first person shooter that I, I, I'm not sure what the name is. So often, some, sometimes probably like once a week, I'll be on Facebook doing my job <laughs> and I'll see that he's live and he's streaming and I'll just watch his stream for a little while and I'll watch him, you know, really other players or, or, or get killed numerous times by other is players. this like a full-time job for him what is he is he that big i don't think he's that big yet maybe but he's got like 500 or a thousand followers and he's he's doing it methodologically and seriously you know he streams so he's got a little a little niche in that world he was something i gotta say he was so motivated i i visited i spent damon and i i think it was damon damon and i spent time with him when he was recuperating he he was the navy eod officer who lost i think both his legs didn't he um yeah. stepping out of mine and um you know he we visited him out in in san diego where he was based and he was already running on his legs he was trying to he he was at the time, I think, and I don't, I don't remember how many months this was, but it was only months after that deployment. And he was looking to try to get on the, um, the US, I guess, Special Olympics team. I don't, I don't think he made it, but it was kind of extraordinary what he was doing to get in shape, biking and running and swimming. I think he was trying to be a triathlete, as I recall. Um, he did make, he ended and, up making uh, volleyball. He made U.S. Special Olympics volleyball, I think. Did he really? I think so. Yeah. I mean, he posted a lot about most, that stuff. Just an extraordinary guy, just driven and focused and um, resilient. Um, well, good for him. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, you want to wrap? Yeah. Thank you for joining me today. I really appreciated catching up about that tour. The longer I live, the more surprised I am at how fresh much of that experience was or is. And thank you and Damon for your coverage of that deployment when it happened. I know that meant a lot to the soldiers and their family members, and it meant a lot to me too. I hope that it helps future historians understand what being there was like for the people as they lived it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you for, for all the time you spent with Damon and me and the incredible um, openness you know you treated us with it was it meant a lot to us and and i think we always respected you for it and um and i think it made for good journalism so thank you for that thank you